Well, so today uh, we're doing the sovereignty of God, the attribute that God is sovereign. This is one of the more controversial ones in, um, in uh, at least in American life. I don't know about historically, but in, uh, in America, uh, evangelical Christianity, it is certainly very, very controversial. Everybody agrees that God is sovereign. It's not controversial in the sense that there are Christians who say God isn't sovereign, but really what we mean by that and to what extent God is sovereign is very, very debated. So, um, so before we talk about it, uh, what, what are, how, how do you, what comes to your mind when you hear the word sovereign? What does it mean to be sovereign? Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. So a very political definition, and that's, that's very accurate, right? A nation, a sovereign nation has a right to control its own borders. It gets to define its boundaries and maintain those boundaries. Good. I say total control. Yeah. Total control. Yeah. So that's essentially what the word sovereign means. It means uh, authority. Uh, this is why we will sometimes refer to, well, we don't do it in our culture and context so much, but throughout world history or Western history, uh, political rulers were referred to as sovereigns. Uh, that's simply what it means. We know that the Lord is sovereign, Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. This is the sovereignty of God, that he is king that his kingdom is all things, that he has a kingly throne, right? So this is the imagery of authority. God is a king, God sits on a throne, and he rules over everything. So when we call God sovereign, we're saying that God is, he is in control, he has authority over every sphere of creation. Charnock says this about it, God is sovereign Lord and king and exercises the dominion over the whole world, both heaven and earth. This is so clear that nothing is more spoken of in Scripture. He's arguing that, that the Scriptures repeat this thing more than anything else, that God is king, that God is Lord, that God is the authority over all things. So that is an, how we understand sovereignty. Uh, another way that's really popular, sovereignty is more of the modern word. Uh, it's very, very popular for people to talk about the sovereignty of God. Um, historically, the word dominion was used more common. God's dominion. He has a dominion over, and these really mean the exact same thing. They're the same thing. So we're ta tonight we're talking about God's dominion. We're talking about God's sovereignty. It's important when we define sovereignty to distinguish between authority and power. Uh, in my experience, the way sovereignty is used in our contemporary debates is people use it to speak of God's power. That God is sovereign, meaning He does whatever He wants to do. God is sovereign, which means He accomplishes anything He wants to. And that's actually not God's sovereignty that we're talking about there. That's God's omnipotence. That's His power. God has the power to accomplish His will. His sovereignty is related to his power, but it's different. Uh, his sovereignty is more about authority. So God's power is God's ability to accomplish his purpose. God's authority is his right to use the power. It's his right to do that thing, right? So, uh, for example, this is, I don't know why this is the first that came to my head. This is kind of crass, but I mean, I technically have the power to, uh, to physically harm Layla. I have the power to hurt my wife, but I don't have the right to do it. Right? Just because I can do it doesn't mean that I have the right to do it. So theoretically, we could imagine a God who's all-powerful. He has the right to, he has the ability to do whatever he wants, but he would lack proper authority. 
So sovereignty is more about the authority of God than the power, but there's no doubt that there is an extremely close relationship between these two things. In our own day and age, the link between authority and power is so close that we will sometimes use the word power to call someone who's in authority. We talk about the powers that be. We pray for the powers above us. Uh, and because authority, in order for it to be authentic, is going to need power. I mean, an authority that has no power is, in practice, not an authority at all, right? I mean, I could, I could make myself the king of the whole world, but if no one obeyed my orders, then what, what good it would be, right? Um, if, if the entire police force turned against the governor, I mean, what, what power would the governor have now? They can make as many laws as we want. We won't follow them. There's going to be no consequences. And so without power, authority is kind of meaningless. So certainly there is a connection between power and authority. Um, but technically, uh, they are different. A person can be very powerful and not have authority and vice versa. And so when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about his authority, which is not his power, but his right to use his power however he pleases. So God is able to do whatever he wants, and sovereignty means God is allowed to do whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants because he has total dominion. And we can break up his total dominion into two primary categories, the natural and the spiritual, and he has total sovereignty over both. He has sovereignty over the natural world, which is the created material world. So this includes the heavens and the earth, human beings, plants, animals, anything you can taste, touch, see, smell. God has authority over it. But he also has authority over the spiritual realm as well. He has authority over angels and demons. He has authority over your soul. He has authority over all things, whether natural or spiritual. God is above it. God has authority over it. He is sovereign over all things. Well, um, the, the, and I, I mentioned at the beginning why this is so controversial, and here's where it gets controversial. When we start talking about God's natural authority, that includes human beings. And so the question is, so, so everyone's comfortable saying God has authority over human beings, which means he can exercise his power over us however he wants to. But where that debate starts to get really dicey is, okay, but I, I have certain privileges and rights as a human being, or so I thought. Does God's authority, does his sovereignty give him the right to influence my authority and my sovereignty? Like, does God have control over my decisions? And many Christians would say, no, that he's given us this kind of free will and we do whatever we want and he's sovereign over everything else. Um, but unfortunately for these Christians, the Bible just is pretty plainly and unapologetically uh, uh, clear that God does, in fact, exercise a sovereignty even over the wills and desires of man. There's a lot of verses we could show. I, I didn't just collect just some of them. So these are two from Acts 2 and Acts 4, both talking about the cross, the crucifixion. Acts 2, Peter tells the Jews, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So let's stop there. So notice... Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So lawless human beings made decisions. And they said, we're going to kill this guy. And they drove nails into him. And Pilate handed him over. Like a lot of human decisions played out in order to kill Jesus. Yet Peter tells us that these human decisions were part of a definite plan. 
God planned these human decisions, right? In other words, how, does, how, is it, how can we say that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God and then say, but those people could have done whatever they wanted, right? In order for Jesus to be delivered up the way he did, and we call that a plan, that means God had to plan the actions, the choices that delivered him up. He had to plan Judas's rebellion, he had to plan Pilate's decision to give Jesus to the Jews, even though Pilate knew he was innocent. He had to plan the fact that the Jews wanted Jesus over Barabbas, right? Jesus could not have been delivered up according to God's plan, yet we at the same time say Pilate could have said, no, I'm not going to give you Jesus. That the Jews could have said, you know what, keep, keep Barabbas, we'll take Jesus, let him go, right? So obviously God has a control over the decisions that went into carrying out the crucifixion of Jesus. This happens again in Acts 4 when the early church prays that God would protect them from persecution. They say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. That's a lot of different people with a lot of different free will and a lot of different motivations. And yet all of them were doing, they gathered together to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Right? And notice here, this is even stronger language because we don't just have God's plan, we have his hand. That's a metaphor for working. This is, this is Peter, or the early church is literally saying God, like a builder, made this happen. He made the crucifixion happen. He brought the Gentiles and Israel and Pilate and Herod together, and he's the one who made the crucifixion happen. So clearly we have the, the, the book of Acts is not afraid to say, yeah, these people made decisions and it's really evil. And by the way, God planned all these decisions. It just lives with the tension and it's okay with that. We see some softer references. For example, in 1 Samuel 10, Saul also went to his home at Gebeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. And then I should have included verse 27. Verse 27 talks about people who didn't go with Samuel because they hated him. So notice here that the reason these men went is because of something God did in their hearts. God stirred their hearts, which affected their decision right? God had a sovereignty over these people. Uh, a really famous one is in Exodus 4. God tells this to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is pretty amazing. You ask the question, like, why didn't Pharaoh let the people go when he saw clearly, clearly God was against him? I mean, his, the Nile turned to blood. And the whole people... And God tells us, though, God hardened his heart. Pharaoh was hardened. He hated God. And he hated Moses. And his pride didn't let the people go. That's why. He was an, an evil, prideful man. That's the reason. But God said that his pride was so bad because God hardened his heart. And what a lot of people want to do is they want to reverse the order. They'll say things like, well, we think Pharaoh hardened his heart first, and then God just hardened it again. The text is actually very clear that God is the initiator. But regardless of that, we don't even, it doesn't even matter who did what first. God is saying, I will do something so that. God is saying, my action caused Pharaoh's choice or lack of choice. Right? You see how una the Bible is just not embarrassed to, to teach. Yeah, God didn't want Pharaoh to let him go, so he did something to Pharaoh's heart, which caused Pharaoh to make a particular choice. 
We see uh, in Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Right? Your desires, your passions, all of these things. God is the one who fashioned that. God is the one ultimately making you who you are. It's not arbitrary that you love music. God is the one who fashioned your heart. This is part of God's plan. Another really strong word, Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Right? God controls the actions of kings. He has that ability. So, uh, and, and we're not even going to, today's not an apologetic course. We're not going to get into the whole, well, then why isn't God responsible for evil? I mean, that's just for a different class. We want to just say basic and just simply say that, yes, God is sovereign over men. And that includes every part of us. He's not just in control of your body, but you're in control of your soul. I mean, he, you're in control of your soul, but he has authority over your soul, right? He, he can do with you what he pleases. Uh, this is made very abundantly clear in Romans 9, speaking of Mo Moses and Pharaoh again. Paul says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is a really powerful statement. Uh, Paul begins, well, really, he's just quoting the scriptures here, but the scriptures are very clear that why, why was Pharaoh, the, the particular Pharaoh that refused to let the people go, why did that Pharaoh become Pharaoh? Like, whose choice was that? Well, it was because he was born into a certain family and he, you know, raised to a certain level and he never got sick. And all those things are true, but ultimately it was God. God was in control of all the choices and genetics that raised Pharaoh up. And God said, here's why I raised Pharaoh up, so that I could crush you. I wanted to raise this man to an incredible amount of power so that my even greater power could be demonstrated in the whole earth. The only reason I raised Pharaoh up was so that I could raise, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then the conclusion of that is so clearly God can show mercy to whomever he wants and he can harden whomever he wants. He has that kind of dominion over men. And then the question that's on everybody's mind, Paul anticipates. Like when I say things like Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a river in the hand of the Lord and he steers it wherever he wills. That means, Moses, that means Pharaoh's heart is a river in the hand of God, and he steers it wherever he wills. So Pharaoh did not let the people go, and the ultimate reason, not the only reason, but the ultimate reason is because God steered his heart that way. And so then what's the question you're asking? Well, then why would God blame Pharaoh for merely doing what God caused him to do? And that's what he brings up. Why does he, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? Why would God find fault with me for merely doing what God willed me to do? That's the question that everyone's asking when we go through these verses. And notice Paul does not give us a philosophical answer. He doesn't resolve the tension. He doesn't explain it. He jumps to the more important answer, which is, why are you even questioning God right now? This, in other words, Paul is essentially saying the answer to this question is above your pay grade. Your job is to simply understand that you're a man and he is God and he can do whatever he wants. 
And then he, he even gets a little sarcastic with it. I mean, when we tell God, well, why, can't, why, why, why are you still going to find fault with me when my actions are ultimately your, part of your plan? And Paul here says, that's like the, the clay pot turning up and saying, no, 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 you're not allowed to make me into a vessel for wine. I want to be used, I want to be used for, for, for flowers. The pot doesn't have that right. We don't have that right. God is the potter, we are the clay, and he chooses how he's going to mold and make the clay. So Paul here is, is really presenting us with an uncomfortably high view of God's sovereignty. God's dominion is not just over the birds and the trees and the stars, it's over us. His sovereignty is over whether we become rich or poor, whether we do this or that. I mean, God has total dominion over natural and spiritual realms, and that includes the choices of men. Bill, I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, it's, it's rebellion. Yeah, that's, that's what Paul is sensing, yeah. To do that. The question is not what do I want or what do I think, but what does God what does God want me to do? What what yeah, yeah, that's right. It, there's there should it's yeah, it gets gray. It's not gray, but there is no more I you know, I want to go I want to go to the movie tonight. Well, that's irrelevant. That's really irrelevant. Does God want me to go to the movie tonight? Right. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, He affects my. He affects a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But that's a deeper question, and it maybe helps me think. Well, is the movie going to be good for me? Yeah. Right. Or is you know, is there something else I'm supposed to be doing? Right. Or I mean, but uh, the focus on me, and that's. We just, I just see that everywhere these days. Is we look through that or even reading about ethics. The thing is, it's <clears throat> God doesn't have the right to, I mean, I, I have the right. I have the right to ask. I have the right to do. Like the club. I've got the right to say, no, I want to be a flower pot. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll be no, no, that, no, that's all great. That's all great. And, and, and I want to add on to, uh, again, remember, the only purpose of tonight's class is just to show that God has this kind of dominion. I don't want you to think that there aren't great theologians out there who, who take other verses in Scripture and can talk more about this. There is. I have lots of resources. So you don't need to panic too much. Uh, you know, we're not just simply saying, shut up, don't, don't ask anymore. Um, that was just what Paul said in this particular context, but the Bible sheds more light on this in other places. So, so there are reasonable questions to ask, like, well, why, why did God allow this to happen? I mean, not every question you ask is necessarily rebellion. So I, I want you to know that there, there are good questions to ask about this, and there are good resources available, but simply for tonight's purpose— we're not going to go down those rabbit trails. We're, we're just going to show that we tend to have a natural reflex in evangelicalism, which is that um, I have a free will, and, and we agree with that, but the way people define free will is that means that ultimately I'm going to do whatever is my desire, and God is just going to, he's not going to ever intervene in what I decide to do, but he'll work around it and kind of make things right. 
But all I want to see is that the Bible is very comfortable in saying, no, God can not just work around your will. He can work through your will. He can actually influence you to do and think and feel uh, whatever is best according to his plan. He, I, you hear this, we used to hear an expression all the time growing up, God's a gentleman, and a gentleman never forces himself on you. A gentleman never makes you. And it just, that's just simply not a true analogy. God is not afraid to steer men's hearts or to harden men's hearts or to soften men's hearts or to do a whole host of other things to influence people's will. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and and you, and it is hard to answer. But you know what's another good answer? Here, and here's why. Because so here's what people happens. People will bring up you know what we said here, and they'll say, okay, so what about child rape? Right? Uh, you know, uh, and 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 let me give two different sides of the coin here. Number one. Um, People who deny the view of sovereignty I'm presenting you today are still not really off the hook when it comes to really bad things. Like, so they look at me and they say, oh, look, your God is so evil because your God controls what men do ultimately and men do terrible things, which means your God is controlling terrible things. But I mean, is their concept of God really that much better? Uh, you know, anytime a child is raped, uh, God, in their, in their system, God still had plenty of tools available to him to prevent this without being sovereign over the person's will, right? Uh, my next door neighbor, when I was 10 years old, had a heart attack in the middle of dinner and died. His son was an EMT. His son was sitting at the table with them eating dinner, an EMT. He had an EMT on scene and he died of a heart attack in the middle of dinner. So God clearly has the ability to just kill people. And so I could ask the non-Calvinist the same question. Why did Phil just get a random heart attack and die in the middle of the night? But that same night, there was a child rapist somewhere who didn't get a heart attack. Right? If, God, if, 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 if you want to believe in a God who's not in any way, shape, or form accountable for child rape, then you need to believe in a God who gives men heart attacks right before they commit child rape. That's how God could prevent it. Or, if I'm about to kidnap the child, uh, why doesn't my car break down? Can God do that? Before the, tri before the airplanes hit the World Trade Centers, do you think God could have given those planes a mechanical problem? See, no one's free will is being messed with, and 2,000 innocent lives are saved. And it's not that hard for God just to make a plane not be able to fly. So, so don't think that we're the only Christians who have a hard time dealing with well, what about terrible things? What about evil? What about child rape? But more, but more importantly to the point, uh, this, this might be hard to hear, but it's, if this is bad, if this is hard to hear, that's bad because this should be a very simple statement. It's amazing how often people will go to like child rape or child murder when they're trying to, you know, refute this view here. There's no way God could predestine child rape. There's just no way. No way. That's too evil. But let me ask you a very simple question. What's worse, the rape of a child or the crucifixion of Jesus? What's the more heinous sin? And the answer is actually pretty clear. The crucifixion of Jesus. That's actually the worst sin. The child is, is precious and innocent and as amazing as they are, they are still sinners. 
They're still creatures. They're not God. Those are sinful creatures being sinned against. They are not more special. They're not more important. They're not more valuable than the sinless maker of the universe. Crucifying Jesus is an infinitely more wicked sin than raping a child. And yet the Bible has no problem telling me that that sin was predestined. Right? So notice what people do. They say, okay, yeah, God can predestine the worst sin that's ever happened. But don't you dare tell me he predestined lesser sins. That makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense. If once, once we grant this, every other sin has to be granted. If, if God can predestine this, then yeah, he can predestine the fact that a drunk driver hit that car and it killed a little girl. That's terrible. I'm not trying to downplay that. But it's not as bad as this. And yet, notice even how Peter says that these people delivered Jesus up according to the definite plan of God, and yet he says that they were lawless men. So Peter, how, I don't know how he fits it together in his mind. I have books that try to explain it. But regardless of how Peter fits it together, here's what we know. Peter's very comfortable saying God predestined all of this, yet the people involved are still accountable. And we know this from Romans 9. Pharaoh's going to be judged on Judgment Day. And how that works together, well, Paul told us, didn't tell us here. But we can still say child rapists are going to be severely, 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 severely judged on Judgment Day. They are lawless, evil men. But we don't have to, right? We, we, we have to put these things together. So you're right, Bill. It, it is a tough question to ask, to answer. And it's okay to even say, I don't have an answer. But don't think that they're off the hook. That They have to answer for why child rape happens too. Why doesn't their version of God do something about it? Because he could. And, and they have to answer for Acts 2 and Acts 4. So don't feel like we're the only ones who have a hard time coming up with these answers. It's hard, right? It's hard for everybody. Yeah. And a definite plan too, right? It's not just like a loose plan, but if people decide to do something else, he'll, he'll go to plan B. It's, it's one plan, plan A, no other plan, it's definite, right? And yet, everyone's... To be the ones that decide what God's purpose is. We can surmise some things, but we'll never know exactly. And that, that, that's, essentially, that's essentially what Paul's getting at here. I heard one person say... Um, let me give, this is a rabbit trail. We can go through the rest of this fast. One time, um, someone asked me, this was a long time ago, I was in high school. Someone asked me specifically, because uh, another good verse that often comes up when we talk about controlling men's will, I can't believe I forgot it. In Genesis 50, 20, uh, Joseph, if you remember the story of Joseph, his brothers sell him to slavery. He becomes a slave, he rises, prince, and then he meets his brothers again. And when his brothers finally find out this is Joseph, they think he's going to take vengeance on us. He's going to kill us. So they fall before his feet and they beg for mercy. And Joseph shows them mercy and he tells us why. And he tells them because first and foremost, it's, this is, it's not my job to be judged. That's God's job. So I'm just going to let you, I'm, that's not my job. So he goes to the sovereignty of God. I, I'm not the sovereign one, God is. But then he goes on to say, but I'm also kind of happy you did what you did because now I see God's hand in it. And in Genesis 50, 20, for what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Then he says, comma, to bring about the salvation of many lives. 
And we know how that ends because how does the story end? The reason people were going to Egypt, the reason Joseph's brothers were there is they were asking for food because God raised Joseph to power in Egypt, prophesied a famine, and so Egypt was the only nation that stored up food because they were the only nation that knew this famine was coming. So Egypt was able to feed all these other nations. So because God sold Joseph into slavery, and that's what the text says in two different places, God sold him. It was God doing it. He didn't just allow it, he did it. He was able to save all these people. And then I had an atheist friend of mine named Chris McKeeman ask a really good question. He said, but that's funny because, yeah, you can say, well, God is so good because he raised Joseph to power to save all these people from the famine. But last time I checked, your God was in control of the famines. Why not just not bring the famine? And then Joseph doesn't need to become prince of Egypt. And here's what I noticed. Once I give one answer, it doesn't actually make them happy. It just creates another question. So then I could ask that. I could answer that. And just create another question. And then one time I heard a theologian explain this to me perfectly. Because God ultimately is working all things together for one purpose. So the, 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 when you ask why did this happen? Why did X happen? The answer to that is almost infinite. It didn't just happen for one reason. It happened for the whole chain reaction for all of human history. Like, he, he talked about how, you know, you've heard of the butterfly effect, how all of our decisions and consequences are so, you know, if a person turns left instead of right, then they hit that car, and then that person dies. Well, what if that person's kid was supposed to cure cancer? And what if that person... You see how every little decision has huge consequences. So everything God is doing is like this big tapestry and if you start pulling on one thread, you eventually unwind the whole thing. So in reverse, if you were to ask, like, why is this little color red here? The only way for God to answer that fully is to tell you the, the whole purpose of all of creation. You couldn't handle that kind of information. Yeah, you, and you couldn't. And you couldn't see it. Even if God tried to show you, it's, it's an infinite amount of information for your finite mind. So I, I think that's part of why Paul cuts to here. Like Paul says, God, if he really wanted to, could sketch out on an infinite blackboard. Well, why did I allow this young girl to get cancer? Well, here's why. Da-da-da-da-da-da. And then we see the whole human history unfold before us. But we can't handle that. We, we just simply can't go there. So that's why it's better for us just to trust him. It's better for us just to like the book of Job. Where were you when I created everything? Where were you? It's better for us just to realize he's the sovereign creator. I'm not. I don't get it, but I trust him. Right? And I think that's why Paul's not saying there isn't an answer to this question. I think he's just saying there's, there's, there's something easier for you. Then trying to figure this out, there's something easier for you, which is just, just trust him. Right? But um, I'm sorry. Let, let, How smart our parents were, some of our parents. When they say you do it because it says, <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah, that's right. That's right. It's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. And, and 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 a lot of times you're right. And there's because there's two lessons there. Number one, there's there's a lesson of authority and trust and and power, but then there's also a lesson of capacity, right? Like if if Matthew were to ask me, well, why are you doing that? I could know in my head, Matthew, you're not going to understand the answer. Even if I tried to explain to you, you're not going to get it. And that's what God's saying. God, why did you do this? God's going, you want me to explain my eternal purposes to you? You're not going to get it. <laughs> yeah. Why? 
Okay, yeah, exactly. Wash your hands when you go to the bathroom. Why? Okay, so now I have to explain microbacteria and amoebas and sickness and white T cells and no, just 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 trust me, right? So I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But in its in its authority as well, it is. Um, so let's let's go through also just some of the ways we've we've seen right now. We've just focused on how God is sovereign over the wills of men, but we're going to go back big picture. God is dominion over everything. And there's lots of different ways that we see in this manifested in Scripture. And one of the main ways is by attributing God as creator. The reason God has authority is by virtue of being creator. And we inherently know this. When you create something, you own it. Right? If, if I paint a, a painting, I can sell it. I can burn it. I can hang it up. I could redo it. I can edit it. But you don't have the right to edit my painting or to sell my painting. Or, right? When you create something, you own it. And we even see this naturally played out in children. Very few people ever need to take a philosophy class to learn why do parents have authority over their kids. We just inherently and naturally know you made them. <laughs> you created them. So they're yours. So you have authority over them. Right? We, we see in nature just this natural authority endowed to something's creator. If you created it, it belongs to you. And since God created everything, it belongs to him. Everything that he made belongs to him. God is sovereign by virtue of being creator. We see this in Acts 4, the same passage where they begin by crying out to God. When they heard of the persecution, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Right? Why do they know that God is the sovereign Lord? How do they know that God is the one they should pray to, the, the, the king of everything? Because he made it. Because <laughs> he's the one who made all this stuff. He's the creator of it, so he's the owner of it. In Acts 17, Paul draws on this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Again, why is he Lord of heaven and earth? Because he made heaven and earth. He is its maker, so he owns it. Related, go ahead. No, please, go ahead. We're here to discuss. He not only made it like somebody paints a picture or builds a house. He made this stuff that it's made. Exactly, yeah. Totally. That's right. He arranged a pretty birthday cake. That's right. It's like everything, every molecule, every atom and subatomic particle is him. That's right. He has made it. It's there because he defined it even though we haven't defined it yet. Exactly. And, and, and that's why even our analogy of creating, it, it's, it's just amplified with God. Yeah. Because like if you paint a painting, it's true, you own that painting because you made it, but you didn't make all of it. You didn't, you, you didn't make, exactly, you didn't make the atoms and the... So how much more, God is far, has far more authority over creation than you have even over your own painting. Because God is even more the creator and author of creation than you are of anything you make. You can write a song, but you didn't make the E note. Right? The reason the E note is, is vibrations in the air vibrating at a certain pitch, you didn't create that. You borrowed it, put it together, and made a nice little tune with these different notes, but you didn't make music. <laughs> right? God is the only one who truly makes things. He truly creates things. And so he is its authority over it. And related to the fact he didn't just create everything, but he's also the one who constantly sustains it and gives it life even after creation. He's sovereign because he's the one upholding it. If, if, if you kick God out, like if we have the power to say, you know what, God, we're done with your authority. We're done with your reign. Get out of here. You know what would happen to us? 
we would go away. We would poof. <laughs> God didn't just make us. He sustains us. So he's, he's, he's sovereign by virtue of saying, if I'm not here, you're not here, right? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? This is why he is authority over the universe, because without him, it's gone. This is, we already read this, but Paul goes on. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And he goes on to say, in him we live and move and have our being. This is all about God's sovereignty. God it cannot be served by us because he does not need us. On the contrary, it's we who need him because he's the one who gives life and breath to everything. He's the one who determined that human beings would exist and where we would exist and where we would go. He's the one who put us on earth and where he put us. It's all according to him. And in him we live and move and have our being. Meaning if he's gone, you have no life, you have no movement, you have no being. There is no energy. <laughs> exactly. There is no There's nothing. That's right. For the physical Exactly. Yep. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. And you see, you see just this high language of, of, sus, of sustenance. God gives being and movement to everything. God determines where everything will be, where it will go. You take God out of the picture, you take everything out of the picture. So that's why he is sovereign. And, and that's where the, the, your, your, your idea of creation, your theory of creation or evolution, that's at the heart of it. Yeah, no, that, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, God's uh, uh, sovereignty is also manifested in, his, in the fact that he is judge. Uh, he is the judge of the universe. We see in scripture that he allots punishments, that he allots rewards, that he gives the law. And people, you can't do these things if you don't have a rightful authority, right? I don't get to go into your household and say, okay, from now on, everyone is not allowed to wear socks in the house. I don't get to make rules in your household because I don't own the household. So if God is making rules, that means he owns the place, and if God is distributing judgments and punishments, that means he owns the place, right? So the fact that he acts as judge reveals that he is sovereign. There's a lot here, so I'm sorry it's so small, but he gives law. And, and this is James 2 talking about that uh, we are not allowed to become transgressors of God's law. And here's what I love about James 2. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And why is that? For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What I love about James is James is, he's not saying all sins are equal. He's not saying that. He's not saying every sin offends God the same way. He's, that's not what he's saying. But what James is saying is that at the end of the day, the reason perfection outside of Christ, if you weren't saved by Christ, the reason perfection would be what you need to get into heaven is because at that point, it doesn't matter which law you break, whether you've broken the first commandment or the tenth commandment, at the, same, at the end of the day, you're, doing, you're both doing the same thing, which is offending the same God, right? Why is commandment one through ten, why are they all equally important? Because they're all, they all have the same author, right? They all come from the same God. You're offending the same God, right? That's what he says. For he who said, do not also said. Doesn't matter which one you break, you're offending the same God. So James is clearly pointing us to the reason the law matters is because it comes from a rightful authority. 
right? God is the authority, so he gives law. He afflicts and he blesses from Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then later on in chapter 2, Job said to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, God has the authority to bless you. He has the authority to afflict you. If he, was, if he did not have rightful authority, these would be wrong. He wouldn't have the right to give you presents. He wouldn't have the right to afflict you. But because he's sovereign, he can. Related to this is that God disciplines, right? Hebrews 12 tells us that he disciplines all of his children as sons. When he disciplines us, he's treating us as sons. And so the fact that he is a father implies that he has authority, right? Fathers have authority over children, right? Fathers are allowed to spank their own children. I don't get to spank your kids. I don't get to touch your kids. You get to spank your kids, right? Because you have authority over them. God is father, which makes him authority over us. And he's allowed to discipline us. And then punishment and reward from Romans 2. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Again, simple point there is God is the judge. He's the one who's allowed to determine good, evil, reward, punishment, and that means that he has authority. He has sovereignty. But we even see his sovereignty expressed in the fact that he's a redeemer. And this is the second point of sovereignty that gets very, very controversial. And that is that God has the authority to save whomever he wants to save. Right? If God was obligated to save a certain people, then we could question his authority. At that point, he would be, he would be working more as a middleman. There's some other authority... There's something else out there that's demanding, God, you must save those people. And God is obeying that authority. Okay, fine, I'll go and save those people. If salvation was according to works, we could question God's authority. Because God could theoretically say, I don't want to save Bill. But you know what? He did this, and I saw him help that lady yesterday. It's, okay, I guess I have to. That's not really someone speaking from authority. But because God can bless whoever he wants to bless and save whoever he wants to save, that demonstrates his authority. We see this not with salvation, but just with religious blessing. Paul says in Romans 3, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision, much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Here's why I put this one up here. Notice, you were born in America in 2022. You are born to a, a stable Christian home, and you're born and raised in the Christian faith. You have a lot of advantages in that situation. It doesn't guarantee that you'll be saved, but you've got a lot of advantages there. At least compared to... Say someone who's born on the exact same day in the exact same year in Iran to a Muslim family. Grows up in a Muslim home and dies of an unfortunate accident at 20. Never hears the gospel. You clearly had far more advantages to have your sins forgiven than that boy. And according to what we read in Acts 17, who ultimately determined where you would be born and where that boy would be born? God. God was under no obligation to give everyone a, the same shot. God's not under the obligation to give everyone the same blessings. Even here, let's, let's go back, you know, let's go back 4,000 years 
And God gave the Jewish people way more advantages than the Egyptians. The Jews had the law. The Jews had the oracles of God. The Jews had the prophets. The Egyptians didn't have any of it. All they had were fire and brimstone and frogs and blood turned to Nile, and that's all they got. So God shows us that he is sovereign by showing us, I can bless people religiously however I want to. I'm under no obligation to give everyone the same chance. Now, we might think, oh, that's cruel or not, but the point is, is he has the right to do that. It shows his sovereignty. Um, Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption, uh, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Do you see how God-focused this all is? Right? Why are, the, why are the elect the elect? Because it was just His will, to the praise of His grace, according to the counsel, His own counsel. Right? God is ex- exercising authority in salvation. I save whom I want to save for whatever reasons seem best to me. I'm not answering to, to a higher power here, right? He is the tippity top. Uh, we, we saw, this is the beginning of Romans 9. Um, not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Right? Jacob and Esau's destiny, we're not ultimately up to one being good or one being bad or one working hard or one making a certain choice. It was on the mercy and predestination of God. He has authority in salvation. And just this last one from Titus, this is just a verse about how God saved us not because of works, but because of his mercy and his grace. So again, uh, God exercises freedom in salvation, which shows us he has the authority, right? He's not under any obligation to save in a certain way or to save a certain people. He gets to do whatever he wants in salvation, right? So we see all these ways, and then just, uh, I'll go through this one just really briefly for time, but we also see that God is sovereign because he has the authority to make other people sovereign, right? Like, I can't just make myself the president of the United States. I don't have the authority to do that. If I became the president of the United States, it would be because a higher authority bestowed it upon me. And so the fact that God is the one who bestows authority on earth shows that he has authority over it right? He has to have rightful authority in order to bestow authority. So Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been instituted by God. Uh, That's civil authority. Church authority, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, right? Every pastor has been made an authority over his church, and he will have to answer to God for how he pastored his church, for the things he taught and the way he lived. And what does that mean? That means that he's not the ultimate authority over the church. God is. That he answers to somebody else, right? And then even in the family, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit to yourselves, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands and everything. Right? So there's an authority structure within the family. But the reason a husband is the authority is not because he's super strong and he can force his way. It's because Christ has set this up. Christ has set up the authority. There's God, Christ, man, woman. Christ established it. So we see Christ has authority because he got to establish authority. Does that make sense? Right? God has rightful authority, so that's why he can set up whatever lesser authorities that he wants. So I have nine applications, which I think we can get through pretty quickly, where I know we're running short on time. But do you, before we get to applications, do you have any just general thoughts or questions? I know we kind of went through that pretty fast. But any just thoughts or questions just on the sovereignty of God? They can be conflicts. They can be frustrations, too. I just have one real quick one. That was, I was thinking about abortion. People don't believe in predestination. have no idea what to do with if you believe in predestination, well, God has already chosen what's going to happen to him. Mm. And I can believe that maybe they're all predestined to happen. Yeah. Because you know, God was saving them from the bad parts of this world. But either way, God has already chosen. If people don't believe in that, they have no answer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. And proof of that, even... The proof of that is two things. So in our confessions of faith, the Reformed ones, when they address what happens to children, they, they all give slightly different answers. But the, because the Bible doesn't give us a direct answer, none of these confessions were bold enough to give a direct answer, which is good, right? We don't want to speak where God has not spoken. So none of the confessions say, like, all infants go to, go to hell or all infants go to heaven or whatever. Um, typically what they do, but they, they'll, they'll say true language. So some of them will say, based on other theology they have, they'll say things like, we have, we have good reason to hope that the children of Christian parents will go to heaven. But the, the, what our two confessions that we point to, what they say, is that all elect people who die in infancy go to heaven. And that's perfect. Because now we're not making a dogmatic statement about every single child, because we don't know. It's possible all children are elect, and therefore all babies go to heaven. That's, that's very possible. It's possible none of them are elect, and none of them go to heaven, and the confession's still true, right? But because of what Bill's saying, because we believe God is sovereign over salvation, we believe God has the same power and authority to save an infant that he does to save an adult. So we have consistency in our understanding of sovereignty and salvation to at least have hope that, yeah, infants can be saved, it can be predestined and elect and saved by God. Uh, when you reject Calvinism, you lose that hope. And this is evidenced because from the third century to the Reformation, it was the universal consent of the church that any unbaptized child that dies goes to hell. Every Christian for, for 5, 4, 3, 2, 1,200 years believed that all unbaptized infants go to hell. And why? That's because their view of salvation was you're saved by baptism. These children don't have baptism, so they're not saved. The Roman Catholic Church specifically started to try to evolve. And so what the Roman Catholic Church started to make up is they made up this new place no one's ever heard of before called Limbo. And they said, well, unbaptized babies go to limbo. We're not going to send them to hell because that's harsh. They didn't do anything wrong. But they can't go to heaven because they're not baptized. So they'll go to limbo. And what is limbo? They never, they weren't willing to say. Is it good? Is it bad? Oh, we don't know. They just go to limbo. 
Now, most Catholics have abandoned that. Some still maintain it. It's not defined by the church. But the, but the point is, is when you don't have the Reformed understanding of predestination, it's very, very difficult to justify some belief that God will, that God can save babies. Exactly, right, yeah, yeah. He has both the power and authority. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I, I personally, just to throw out my two cents, I do actually believe, I'm one of the people, never speak this dogmatically, we don't know. I do believe that all infants are, go to heaven. And I base that off of uh, Romans chapter 1, when Paul talks about the reason um, no man has an excuse. is He says, because God has, made, has revealed himself in the things that have been made. Ever since creation, in the things that have been made, God has made himself plain to us. And so I think that Romans 1 subtly implies that people who do not have the cognitive capacity to see God in creation, they do have the excuse. Like Paul says in Romans 1, you don't have an excuse because you've seen creation. Uh, an infant has not seen creation. So I think maybe an infant does have that excuse. Uh, a severely mentally handicapped person, I don't know that they've are seeing God in creation the way. So I, th I think that's a possible exception there to why I think all infants are elect. So I have hope. I, I have a great biblical hope that infants are elect, but eh, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I agree with Bill that if you're going to reject God's sovereignty over predestination and, and salvation, then it's, it's hard to justify that they do. It's hard or that they can because they've got original sin and They've not repented and believed in Christ, and they've not been baptized, so sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's finish off some brief applications. So God is sovereign. Oh, so what? Like, what does that mean for my life? Uh, I came up with nine. I'm sure there's way more. Um, so the first one is holiness, right? Because what is sin? Sin is ultimately treason. Every time we sin... What we're ultimately doing is saying, you know what, God, I think I know better than you. I think that, I know you said not to do this, but I really think that this is actually better. So why don't you step down from the throne? I'll sit in the throne for a second and, and I'll decide life is better if I can do this, right? That, is, that really is what sin is. Every act of sin is an act of treason. It's an act of telling God, I know better than you. I'm more of a boss than you. So if we truly believed God was sovereign, we would submit our lives to him. We would follow his law. Uh, another one is reverence. And you notice how, and some people might think this is a bad thing. I don't think it is as long as it's not done in excess. But in human history, when someone has great authority, we don't treat them like normal people. Right? We, we teach our children from a very young age, even if you don't like the President of the United States, you still show respect. If the President were to walk in right now, I do not like the President of the United States. But if he were to walk in right now, I would not spit on him. I would not flip him off. I would stand up. I would shake his hand. I would, I would show him respect. Why? He's the president, right? All throughout human history, people of high authority deserve a kind of reverence. They deserve a kind of special. And so if God is infinitely authoritative, infinitely more than the president of the United States, how much reverence and holiness, like how much reverence does he deserve? So really God's sovereignty affects how we worship. Right? We don't want to come in here and be silly and lackadaisical. Why? Because we're in the presence of royalty. Right? The, the, the king of the universe is in our midst. You know? I've always thought it'd be funny. Like, how, how, would, how would we change 
How would our behavior change if one Sunday we showed up and like a really famous person was in the room? Or if one day we showed up and a really, really high-ranking official was in the room? You wonder if maybe we would change a little bit, change our posture, our behavior, maybe wish we dressed better. Well, every Sunday we come in the presence of someone who's infinitely more valuable and royal than anyone who could show up. And so this should really affect how we, how we worship. God deserves reverence. Um, another one is trust and hope, right? If God is in control of all things and he has authority of all things, it doesn't mean we understand why he's doing what he's doing, uh, but we at least know that a, a good, gracious, loving, powerful God is in control. And that can help us just to trust him, not have to have all the answers, and to have hope for the future. Yeah, the world's falling apart, but God's in control. I know that sounds like a cliche, but we really need to work on not letting it become like a trite saying. It really does need to be uh, impactful for us. When we say God is in control, don't let that just be a throwaway statement. Like we need to allow that to penetrate our hearts and go, yeah, that, that really is encouraging. I, I really do want to know that God actually is in control. That, that should really give us a lot of hope. Because the world is not falling apart, it's following his Exactly, that's right, that's right. And that, that, that's where we have hope. Uh, we talked about this last week, but again, contentment and patience. If you know God is in control, that helps you to accept your circumstances, right? Just like Job. In Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, right, he, he told his wife, I'm not going to curse God. Why would I accept the good from God and not accept the evil? Right? God is the one who gives and he takes away. So this is why I, I just learned to accept his plan for my life. If he wants to bless me, great. If he wants to take things away, great. Paul says in Philippians, I have learned to be content in all circumstances, whether brought low or whether lifted high. And where does that contentment come from? Where does that patience to endure come from? It comes from because we know that ultimately at the other end of this is, is the will of God for my life. And that gives me a lot of ability to, to be patient when things aren't going my way, right? Just knowing God wants me here for a reason. So let's, let's see it through. Uh, if, if you had a view of God's sovereignty where where, you know, Satan could do whatever he wanted to you, and God is just like, I didn't want that to happen, but I, I'm, I'm working on it. I'll try to fix this. It would be really hard to be patient in that season. It'd be hard to be content. It's like, I have no hope. This is, this is going to get infinitely worse, and God, for some reason, isn't going to stop it, right? But if we can know that, no, every storm I'm in, God actually sailed my boat into it, okay, I know, I, know, I, I trust him. I, I gave the analogy one time in a sermon, an illustration of... Um, Two different scenarios, and, and, and think of how much more comforting one is than the other. Imagine a young boy and a dad, they, they're, on, they're on a lake, and they go out onto the dock, and the boy, young boy doesn't know how to swim. And they're out on the dock, and dad's fixing something, and the young boy starts looking, and he slips, and he falls off into the water. That's a really scary situation. He's probably filled with a lot of fear. I'm, I'm going to drown. This is really bad. Now, imagine they go out into the same scenario. They go out into the dock, and dad says, you know what? It's time for you to learn how to swim. And dad picks him up and throws him in the water. Now, in both circumstances, the kid feels like he's drowning. But in, one, in the second circumstance, you can see there's a lot more ability to be content and patient in that. Because it's like, dad wouldn't have done this if he wasn't prepared to help me when I need it. Dad wouldn't have done this if he didn't know that it was ultimately for my good. Like, if I know dad's the one who put me in the water, even though it's scary and I'm choking, I can at least trust like dad's here. But if I slipped into the water and dad didn't see me, now that's really scary, right? So in our own lives, I don't want to think, oh, I got cancer. I got cancer accidentally. God didn't see me. 
That's scary. But what if God says, you need this? It's time, it's time to learn how to be sick today. You're choking on water. It's still not fun, but there's a lot more peace and contentment knowing I, I am where God put me. I am where God wants to be. Rather than, I found myself in this circumstance, but I think God will fix it someday. <laughs> right? One is a lot more helpful. Um, another application is prayer. We got that from Acts chapter 4. They hear of this persecution that's coming, and so they pray and they ask God, don't persecute us, but how do they start that prayer? Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Right? They have to remind themselves, God's in control. That's why I can pray to him. Like, if God isn't in control of even human beings, when we pray to God, please don't let them hurt me, God, what would he say? That's outside of my jurisdiction. They've got free will. They can hurt you as much as they want, and I can't, I'm not allowed to touch their free will. So sorry, like, they're going to, if they want to persecute you, they're going to persecute you. Nothing I can do about it. But because we believe God has total jurisdiction, we can trust that he, even if he chooses not to answer my prayer, he, if he wants to, he can. Right? He can, he can answer my prayer however he wants, because he's an authority. So God's sovereignty gives us a lot of reason to pray. I, I pray because God can do whatever he wants, and he might, he might answer me. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I mean, God's sovereignty is a good reason to be a Calvinist because I think that they understand it better than most. Uh, another application, I have two of them, the, the two ends of one coin, is number one, to embrace authority. Because God exercises authority, what that means is that authority inherently is good. Authority is not a bad thing. If, if authority itself was bad, then God would have a bad thing about him because he's ultimately authoritative, and that's not good. But authority is good. God gave us authority. So Christians should not be anarchists. We should not be anti-authoritarians. Authority is good. We live in a world that different segments of it want to tell us authority is bad, right? The feminist movement wants to tell women not to submit to their husbands, and then we've got these anarchists who want to tell us to overthrow all governments, and we've, you know, we've got all these different pressures to, and you've got um, church isolationists, who don't think that they can go to church and they don't have to be under any pastor or they don't have to become members. No, one, no one's the boss of me but me. There's all these different people who want to subvert authority in your life, but we need to know authority is good. God gave us authority. We should embrace it and, and enjoy it. But because we live in a fallen world, we do know that authority can be abused. God never abuses authority. And there are people who will take good, godly authority and then they will try to challenge God's authority. And so if we love God's authority, we won't let people overstep their boundaries, right? So because God is authoritative, we should embrace good authority. But because God is authoritative, we should resist anyone who's challenging him, right? So it's kind of the dual-edged coin. So we should love authority when rightfully exercised, and we should resist authority when it's abused. When someone's trying to become God and overstep their boundaries, Christians should be the first people of all people to say, not here, you answer to God. God has authority. He drew the sphere of your authority and you're overstepping it. So by the power invested in me through God, I am commanding you to get back in line, right? So we need to resist tyranny, but never go so far the other way that we reject authority altogether, right? Uh, and so related to that is we need to develop a Christian political philosophy, and, and, and I could spend a lot of time ranting about this, but it's really outside of my wheelhouse, so I won't.
But all I mean by this is I am afraid that a lot of Christians, because they have fallen in love with the concept of democracy, that we have fallen in love with what democracy has led to, which is secularism. And people think it's good that our political leaders are neutral. There are Christians who think it's good that political leaders not be religious because we don't want to enforce religion on someone or because of separation of church and state. But uh, separation of church and state is not a constitutional phrase. Uh, the original signers and writers of the Constitution allowed the states to have state churches. There were, you, there were certain states in the 13 colonies where you had to be a Presbyterian to live there. All the, all the, the, the Constitution did was we couldn't turn America like into the Church of England or into the Roman Catholic Church. But um, the, the Constitution never intended to take religion out of politics, to take God out of politics. And even if it did, then we should, as Christians, just reject the Constitution. And why? Because God is sovereign over everything. That means he's sovereign over America. That means he's sovereign over our political processes. So we should never, ever, ever think it's okay for a Christian politician to step into a political chair and say, you know what, I need to be neutral. I'm not going to act as a Christian here, right? I'm going to take off my Christian hat and I'm just going to be neutral. We would say, no, put that hat back on, right? The, the, the biblical command is that every politician goes into Congress, goes into their office, and the first thing on their thought is how do I honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ today? That needs to be what the president and what the, that means what everyone thinks. And why? Because God did not say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ except for national governments. They're their own sovereign. No, Christ is Lord over everything, including the government. So the government needs to submit to Christ. Oh, I, I wouldn't be, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised, yeah. So, uh, again, so all I mean by that is don't be fooled into thinking democracy means Jesus doesn't belong in the White House. Jesus is Lord of the White House. He, he belongs there more than, more than the president belongs there. He owns the White House more than anybody, right? God belongs in politics because he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And then, uh, but related to that, kind of like this was a double end, related to that is also religious liberty, which means that uh, in the same way we want to obey God when he says, do this, don't do that. We also disregard God's sovereignty when we start making up rules that God never made up. When we start thinking, I get to tell you that you have to dress like this and act like this and wear like this, but God has not said that, that's dangerous. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2 when the Jews were trying to force the Gentiles to continue following all of their rituals that have passed away, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows. Uh, he continues, if you, if you are still alive in the world, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So clearly, not just Jews, but there were even Greeks that came into the church in Colossians and were saying things like, if you were truly holy, you would abstain from marriage and you would just live a single life. 
You wouldn't give in to the passions of your flesh and lay with a woman. You would be single. Marriage is for people who can't control their bodies. And they come in and say things like, if you were truly holy, you would fast three days a week, you gluttons, or you would stop eating meat, or you would stop eating fish. And they, all these things that God has given us, God has said, these are good. Marriage is good. Meat is good. Food is good. And then these religious people come and say, no, don't get married. Don't eat. Don't taste. Don't touch. And they look like they're super religious because, because they can control all of these things. But Paul says that this is just the appearance of self-made religion. That this is not actually true holiness. So it is a very, very bad thing for us to come in and think that I get to make up rules that God has not made. Right? He's the boss. I'm not. So if God says you get to eat fish, you get to eat fish. Even if I don't like it, you get to eat fish. Right? If God says get married, then get married. I have no control over that. So... These are my nine applications. Uh, do you have, I know we're running real late, and I apologize for that. Does anyone have just maybe one other that I missed real quick before we end with a little doxology? People are doing today is having a political philosophy rather than a religious philosophy. Mm-hmm. But that happened in the 1700s, the age of enlightenment. People decided that science had all the answers. Exactly, yeah. There's no place for religion. Yeah, that's right. We're doing it today with government. That's right, yep. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing is there's really no truly neutral sphere. Like you said, it, it wasn't like uh, the, the, the throne of government remained empty. God was taken off and science was put on it. But some, there is always going to be a God that runs the political system. And far too many people want you to think that there's no God on the throne because we're democracy here, but really their God's on the throne. And they just don't want you to, to rage against it. So they convince you it's an empty chair for, for religious freedom. But no, there's, there will always be some kind of singular, some people call it a worldview, some people call it a religion, whatever. There will always be an, an idea of reality. And th- this is what we're seeing in the culture clash right here, like with the whole transgenderism thing. Can a man become a woman? And, and the, the reason, what we're fighting for is we're fighting for authority. Like, does the government have the right to allow people to self-determine their gender? And that's not really a question about the government. That's a question about what worldview is guiding the government. Which God is over the government? The God that says men are not women or the God that says I'm the maker of all things and I made you a man. That's why these debates are so intense because what we're actually fighting for is whose God is going to be in control of our government. Is it going to be the the Christian God who said I made you male and female or is it going to be some other God that says you can be whatever you want to be? Right? Which, Which God is the government going to enforce upon us? But the government will always enforce some religious idea on us, right? People say don't push your morality on us. That's all government can do. The whole purpose of a law is to determine this is good, this is bad, and we're going to force it upon you whether you agree with it or not, right? But the question is, is who determines what is good and what is bad and gets codified into law, right? We say murder is, we say murder is bad, but then we started making an exception. Well, unless you're still in your mom's womb, then we can kill you. How many exceptions are people going to cut off and does the authority, does the government have that authority to just arbitrarily decide who's a human, who's not, right? And we would say no, because there's a God above the system. And everyone's got a God above the system. So yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Bill. What happened in the Enlightenment was not that they went from God to no God. They switched gods. They put a new God on the throne of government, and it wrecked the world. <laughs> there was enough error in the Catholic Church that was disapproved by 
science that, that just made a monster tidal wave. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the uh, classic throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, that's right. Are we sure a way to define the word God? Because the confessions do, but it's quite long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and we're studying the attributes of God, but really we are defining who the God is that's right. that we believe in. And, and, you, and, and the so confessions, when God. they define God, they just list his attributes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so you're right. That's and, what we're doing. So they took God off the throne and replaced him with another God. I understand that, but, but they didn't replace it. I mean, it was, it was still back to Adam and Eve to say yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They're not actually replacing God. They're just pretending. They're just pretending that they've put a, this new little idol on the throne, and we're going to listen to that idol. Yeah. Yeah. We're just refusing. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Well, let's go ahead and end with a little doxology that I think has a phrase in it that pays uh, tribute to God's sovereignty. This is from First Timothy one to the King of the Ages, right? The King over all of eternity. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.